0: We are in chapter 9 of the letter to the Romans written by the Apostle Paul, uh, who is not just sharing his thoughts. He has been appointed by Jesus as Jesus' authorized spokesperson to uh, reveal the good news of the gospel that is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, Paul says at the beginning of this letter, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or also to the Gentile. But we we saw that at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul, after sharing with us this beautiful and good and marvelous news that sinners can be saved through the work of Jesus, Paul is grieving. He's grieving because as he looks around, by and large, the majority of his Jewish people have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They've turned from this offer of the good news of the gospel, and it brings up these questions. Has God's word failed? Maybe this question is being brought up by Jews as Paul seeks to share the good news to them, and they're like, why in the world are we going to believe this message? If it was really the good news, would not all of us be embracing it? Maybe the question has come up from Gentiles who is who are saying, why in the world would we believe in your God and believe these promises you're offering if His promised people and His chosen people from the Old Testament, if they're not believing in it? And so how does Paul go about to defend the character, the faithfulness of this God of promise, of the God who announces the good news? Well, he goes and he appeals to the sovereignty of God to guard and protect and affirm His honor among the nations. And what we saw is what Paul has been doing is he's he's speaking of this sovereign God who, who bestows mercy on whom He'll bestow mercy. Who hardens. Who leaves in their sin and judgment. Whoever He determines predestines to harden and leave in that place of judgment. None of those things are based on the will of man or their exertion, but it's based on the sovereign God who shows mercy. Paul has showed us that the sovereignty of God extends over everything to who will be saved and who will be condemned. As we wrapped up last week, Paul was talking about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and his redemption of bringing his people out of Egypt. And seeing that even there, the sovereignty of God to keep His promises of redemption and to fulfill His purposes in election, Paul says, that, that sovereign God, His power, His decrees, His purposes, His predetermined plan even extends over the sinful actions of men, like Pharaoh. So no one has been lost that God intended to save, Paul says. But that, if, if God's sovereignty extends that far, even over the sinful actions of men, it brings up another question that we touched on last week. And Paul brings this up at the beginning of verse 19. You will say, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Would, would God? Would God find fault with the sinful actions of humans if that is a part of his predetermined sovereign will and the way he's carrying out his purposes in the world. We want to turn and see how does Paul answer that question this morning, and how does it move and direct us to worship and love and depend upon our promise-making and promise-keeping God. So if you would, look with me. We're in Verse 19 of chapter 9 of the book of Romans, looking at verses 19 all the way down through 29 this morning. So if you would, follow along with me in your copy of God's Word there on page 945 in the Black Bibles in your pew. "'You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will?' But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed He says in Hosea, Those who are not My people I will call My people and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people there, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. God, your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. You are so far above us as the creator to us creatures. We need you to help us understand and relate rightly to you and to live faithfully in your world and to grasp the depths of the beauty of the gospel and what you've done for us in Christ. We pray that you would would help us do that this morning. Enable us to understand and know what on our own we couldn't comprehend (coughs) through the power of your spirit and for the glory of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, Paul is addressing this this question, this objection. All right, Paul, if if you're saying that God is as sovereign as you're saying that He is, and that His purposes, His plan, His predetermined plan extends to the salvation of those who He shows mercy to and the destruction of those to whom He hardens... If it involves the sinful actions of men, can he really hold anyone at fault for those sins? Now, we need to make sure we're understanding Paul right. Because the way that we've been approaching this passage and how we've been understanding it up to that point, we realize that that objection definitely could come up. Because we have said and have seen that God's sovereignty extends to everything. In fact, the Scriptures will say there's the most minute things in the world, like a bird falling from the sky or a hair falling from the head, does not occur or happen outside of the will of God. And Paul has been saying the same thing is true for the most important things, the least mundane or menial things, the salvation... Or destruction eternally of humans. Are we understanding Paul rightly? Well, let's I want to make sure we are. To see, is are we misunderstanding Paul? We misunderstanding the scriptures. Because Paul's argument here at this point, if he's not teaching that God is sovereign over all of these things, then the objection that he brings up here really doesn't make any sense at this point. Could he not just appeal to and say, well, I looked into the future and I saw what Pharaoh will do. It's based on Pharaoh's will and what he chose and determined. It had nothing to do with me. But Paul doesn't go there. Paul hears this objection and we'll actually see he doesn't answer it. But let's make sure we're understanding it right. What do the scriptures tell us about how God is and how he relates to the sinful actions of humans as things carry out in the world? Well, if we look back in the book of Genesis, the very beginning, God's people end up, prior to his interactions with with Pharaoh, how in the world did they make it to Egypt? Well, the way that God's people made it to Egypt to begin with is because Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, his brothers hated him because he was his father's favorite. And so they sold him into slavery in Egypt and he ends up in Egypt But by a strange turn of events, he ends up saving the people of God in the midst of a famine, and they all move to Egypt and dwell safely and securely for hundreds of years. But notice how Joseph, in this book written by Moses, interpret and explain what was going on there. This is in Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 17. This is what the brothers are saying. They determine that they want to say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept and when he spoke to them, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Whose plan was it? Ultimately, it was God's plan. The first cause of all things. But Joseph says at the same time, Moses says at the same time, the brothers did evil. Both were operating God's sovereign plan and purpose was to deliver and save his people, but he purposed the sinful actions of these brothers, and they are responsible for them. Later, if we turn over, we saw this uh, last year as we were going through the book of 2 Samuel in chapter 24. We see Again, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and He incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. What does it say? God's anger was incited against David, and He incited him to number Israel and Judah. And guess what God ends up doing? Punishing David and punishing Israel in the midst of that. David's response He pleads and confesses his sin and acknowledges the righteousness and the goodness of God. Both things are operative. David is carrying out God's purposes. What is God's intention and purpose? To judge Israel through the sinful actions of David. Who's responsible for the sin? David is. Does David object to any of that? No. He acknowledges that he is at fault. Does the author of the the book of 2 Samuel object to that? No. He says that, God, that David is at fault, but it was part of God's sovereign purpose. Later, if we go over to the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah chapter 10, Israel is rebelling against God, and so God says that He is going to raise up the wicked and evil nation of Assyria to judge and punish them. Listen to what He says. In verse 5 of chapter 10 of Isaiah, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger! The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Notice, Assyria is the rod of God's anger. He is executing His anger on Israel through Assyria, And He has sent them. But Assyria's way that they go about doing it is of pride and arrogance and wicked and evil. And later on, God says this in verse 12 of Assyria, When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look of His eyes. Whose plan and purpose was it? God's. Did it include the sinful actions of men? Yes. Are they held at fault for that? Yes. The chief example of this would be the death of Jesus, the most wicked and heinous event that ever occurred on the face of our planet. And listen to what the Scriptures say of that act of sin and wickedness. This is Peter commenting, in Acts chapter 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They are carrying out the predestined, predetermined will of God. What is God's intention in doing that? To bring about salvation and deliverance. What are the intentions of these men that are carrying this out? Rebellion and wickedness. Does God find fault? Yes, He does. The whole, all of the scriptures are telling us that this is true. And this is how God works and operates. And so when we get to this section and Paul is proclaiming and upholding the sovereignty of our God over all things, that it extends to everything that God in His wisdom foreordained and decreed and declared whatever would come to pass, and that that includes the salvation of humans, the eternal destruction of humans, And the sinful and wicked actions of men, we understand we're on the right track. And the question, though, that comes up, why does he still find fault? Does he? Yes, he does. But notice, Paul does not answer the question. Why does he find fault? Who can resist his will? Look at what Paul says. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Paul starts not with answering the question, but first off, orienting our hearts, orienting our minds, our understanding. We must understand first who we are and who God is. Who we are and who we are speaking to. Now, Notice here, Paul is not saying we can't have questions and desire more understanding about what we're reading in the Scriptures and how we're seeing God operate in the world. That is, in fact, invited and encouraged. But notice where Paul points us always and where the Scripture always points us is back to the Scriptures and back to the character of our God. The attitude that Paul is addressing here is of a human who would put themselves in the place of judge and jury over God, who assumes the prerogative and the place and boasts of the wisdom to say what God is doing and what he's declared and revealed about himself in the scriptures is wrong. He should not violate my rights. He should not and is not in a place to blame or hold me accountable for anything. He's the sovereign one. He's the blame. I am innocent. Paul says, no. Look at where he points us. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter... even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. Paul is telling us here, we need to first off consider who we are and the God that we are talking to and realizing we are creatures. It it shouldn't surprise us Notice the comparison. He compares us as a pot made by a potter. How much much can a pot comprehend about the one that's made it? I know the guy that made this. He made it for our church before we moved to Elizabeth City. All of this pottery up here was formed and shaped by hand by a potter in Virginia. How different is this from a human potter? Is there any comparison to a pot and a potter? There's not. None at all. None at all. So, would it surprise us That in the process of our sovereign and powerful and gracious creator, as he reveals himself to us and the things that he's doing in our world, that we would encounter certain things about him and his ways in the world that we don't understand, that are a mystery to us, that don't make sense, that we can't in our minds comprehend and bring together. It shouldn't surprise us. But also what that does is it puts us in a place of what happens when we don't understand things? When, when our reason, our mental abilities and skills have a hard time making sense of how these two things can come together, that God can be completely sovereign in all things and that humans are responsible for what they do. That God gets all the glory and is not has nothing to do with or producing evil or wickedness and all of that extends from humans. How do those things fit together? What Paul is saying is in moments like this we go to the character of our God. And we go to our understanding of who we are. He is the creator, we are not. What do we know about him? Well, we know that he's perfect. We know that He's good. We know that He's righteous. In fact, James says this about God. Over in James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Notice what James is saying. God is not Forcing anyone to sin. Where's the sin coming from? It's not coming from God, James says. Notice where he says it's coming from. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God is good. There is no darkness or evil or wickedness in Him. But who are we? Do we remember who we are? We've been created by Him and we've rebelled against Him. In fact, here as Paul is describing these pots, you notice the language that he uses to describe both kind of pots? One is a vessel... Of honor, another vessel for honorable use, a vessel for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What do those vessels deserve? Wrath. The other vessels, what are they? In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. What do those vessels deserve? Breath. But our God and His mercy, our God and His sovereignty has determined to show mercy to some and justice and judgment to others. And everything is unfolding according to His plan and His purpose. And Paul says, do you realize who He is? We must trust Him. We must submit to Him. And that includes our minds. That includes our interpretation of Scripture. That all things that we encounter, we entrust to Him. I don't believe what I'm teaching here because I understand it. I don't. I believe it because God reveals Himself in that way. And He commands us to trust Him. And to bring even our mental capacities under his sovereign control and to submit to him as creator and recognize who I am as his creature. But some of us will say, no, hold on. If if this is like you're saying it is, and like you're saying Paul is saying that it is, then doesn't that not just make humans robots. Make us puppets. Well, it depends on what you mean by that. If, if you mean by describing us as puppets and robots, Paul uses the language of pot, right? If you're just describing that the difference is so great between the one that would make a robot and the robot, or the one that would make a puppet, and the puppet itself is different from a pot that has been created by a potter, then yes, that comparison might hold up. But usually the objection that is brought up is one that understands what God is doing here is that God is forcing humans to do what we wouldn't do left to ourselves. That God is creating sin in the hearts of humanity and that he is forcing robots by programming to do what he would want them to do, inputting the corrupt code to get them to do destructive things, or the puppeteer who dances the the puppets around who have no control over themselves, and they go do wicked and evil things, and then you say God is to blame. But notice, the Scriptures don't talk about humans like that. We are held responsible for our actions. We have desires and intentions. What did James tell us? We're not described as robots who have no desires in and of ourselves. We're not described as puppets. We're described by those who have passions and a will that has been distorted and corrupted by sin. We are doing things and we are doing exactly what we want To do. God isn't forcing the brothers of Joseph to do what they didn't want to do. Assyria wasn't forced to do what they didn't want to do. Pilate, the Roman rulers, the Jews were not forced to do what they didn't want to do. They were all doing exactly what they wanted to do. Paul told us that earlier, remember? Look in chapter 8, beginning in verse. Six. For to the mind set, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. How does he describe the mind, the will of one who is in Adam? Hostile. What are they desiring to do? What is their their passion, their will? is to be hostile to God. But notice what he says. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Here comes in this question again that is brought up. I've talked with some of you about it throughout the past couple of weeks. Is this idea of free will according to what the Scriptures say, is our will free? Well, how do you define that? Are you free to do what you desire in your heart? What your wanter wants to do? Oh, yes. You are free. And we exercise that all the time. But there, the Scriptures portray and talk about our will as enslaved. Your wanter is corrupted and broken. You cannot... In the flesh, obey God. There are only two types of people those in the flesh and those in the spirit. And until the spirit acts and moves, you cannot obey God. Do you know what the command of God is? Repent, believe in Jesus. You see, God isn't forcing and manipulating people to do what they don't want to do. What God does, both in Condemning sinners is giving them over more and more to the corrupted nature of their heart. And what does God do for those that He shows mercy? He changes our heart. He changes our heart in such a way that our wanter is fixed, and now we freely, based on the change of our nature that has come by this sovereign and gracious God, begin to live for His glory, redeeming and saving us. God acts from within, not from without, transforming us. This isn't speaking of robots at all. It's speaking of responsible, free agents, who exercise and do exactly what they want to do, but God is so sovereign over everything that he purposed and intended even the sinful actions of humans to bring about his purposes. But we can actually go even further to see that the perspective that God has on humans and the way that he relates to us is not one of just some mad scientist, corrupt, robotic puppeteer. Do you hear the language that Paul uses of how God relates to his redeemed and saved creatures? I mean, this this blows the mind. Paul has to leave the discussion of potter and pots. Because actually, if you think about it, is not our God far beyond even what we can comprehend of a potter? You haven't met the guy that I know that met this, but let me tell you, if you were to compare him to God, do you know how much overlap there would be? Very minimal. God far surpasses even the greatest potter. And look at what, how this potter relates to us. Do you hear what he says? For some of these vessels, he's showing us Mercy. He's showing us grace. Listen to the grace that he shows us. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who were not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of, of the living God. Can you believe this? Have you ever seen a potter treat a piece of pot like a baby? Like a son? Like a child? To leave all of their inheritance to the pot? To give their life to protect and save and redeem the pot? No! But our God does that for you and for me. The potter became a pot to experience destruction in order to redeem and save pots that were destined or should have been that all that we deserved was to be destroyed and experience His judgment. Or to put it in the other terms, the puppeteer became a puppet. The robot maker became a robot to redeem and save those that He desperately loved and desired to bring into His family. Do you see why Paul here is resorting to and pointing us to the sovereignty of God to affirm to us his great and good and gracious purposes? Because what did he end up with at the end of Romans chapter 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The good news that in Jesus we have the freedom and the ability and the privilege to call out to our Creator and to call Him Father. And here we see why. Here we see why that will never be separated from the love of our God because our salvation was never dependent on our choice. Our salvation was never dependent upon our will or our actions. It was on the sovereign and good and gracious God. And in fact, the great picture of deliverance and redemption is the most beautiful binding and limiting of your will you can ever imagine. When Jesus comes and he redeems and he restores all things, guess what your will will not be able to do? Sin. When Jesus makes all things right, you will never be able to sin again. God violates your free will. Why? To actually give you the freest will the freest will that will only and always and forever love Him and depend upon Him and worship Him and will never go astray. Without God's work, that would never happen. And in fact, that's where Paul ends up here. Notice what he says. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved." For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. What does, this, what does all the earth deserve? Destruction and the wrath and fury of our God. But notice what he says. Isaiah says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we'd have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If it weren't for God acting and working, none of Israel would be saved. If it weren't for God acting and moving, no one would be redeemed. But the sovereign God of grace and mercy chose to redeem and save a people for Himself. Is the fact that the Jews aren't embracing and trusting and hoping in the the promised Messiah invalidate God's promises? Paul says no. It's a part of God's work and promises and His purpose from the beginning. (laughs) In fact, we'll see this over the next couple of weeks more and more, but this passage in Hosea where he talks about calling those who weren't a people to be his people and calling those who had been rejected to being his sons, that was originally given in Hosea's context, describing the people of Israel returning to the land and being restored under the lordship of their God. But notice what Paul is applying it to here that the true fulfillment of the restoration and the redemption of Israel involves God saving and delivering and redeeming His chosen ones out of both the Jews and the Gentiles. Not one of God's promises has fallen. He saves and redeems who He will. And if you hear His voice, if you hear Him call, and you reach out, Jesus, these promises are yours. That you can hear, I deserved wrath and justice, but God in his mercy now is related to me as a vessel of mercy. He has poured out on me his love. And that should humble us. Because remember what we said before, What Paul is addressing here is pride and arrogance in the Roman church. Of the Jewish believers there thinking they were, the gospel was for them just because they were Jews. And the Gentiles thinking, well, look at all these Jews who aren't getting it. We must must understand the scriptures better than they do if we're believing and they're not. And Paul says, no, no. It should humble us to realize and recognize. The love that God has extended to me has nothing to do with me. It's completely wrapped up in His sovereign good purpose and His pleasure. And He decided before the foundations of the world, not randomly, not flipping a coin, but chose you, believer in Christ, to be His child and to set His love on you. If you're here today and you do not believe in Christ, don't respond in the way that Paul is reacting and saying, well, I guess until God changes my heart, I'm not going to believe. And right now I'm just going to continue to live in rebellion and rejection of God until he changes my heart. It's his, his deal. Actually, God doesn't believe for you. But he works and moves to change hearts that you would freely believe. Hearing this, knowing the character of this God who will bring about His purposes and who will punish those who reject Him, may you not respond in this way this morning of calling out to the One who does show mercy. Maybe this is the morning that God in His sovereignty determined to apply his scriptures to your heart. And this morning, he's calling out to you to come. Come. Come and find freedom. Come and find deliverance. Come and find forgiveness. Come and find the mercy that I'm calling you to. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the mercy and the grace of the gospel. We thank you for the love that is ours in Christ Jesus. We thank you that that is all rooted fully and ultimately in your good grace and your purposes. Turn our hearts to you, to love you, to humble ourselves before you, and to call out to our gracious and merciful creator who has made his creatures, his sons. Amen.